So the question is, is walking on the road for two to three hours daily considered developing samadhi? I like to walk and notice that the mind likes it too. So you said that you walk on the road for two, three hours daily and you said that you like to do that and you notice that the mind likes it as well. So is I and the mind the same? This liking that you feel, uh, well, it is a feeling, an experience that's arising. So you're walking and you feel at ease and you feel like it's something good. There's a pleasant feeling there Maybe the body feels more energized as well. So walking on the road for an hour, two hours, three hours daily, if you do that and you are thinking a lot, there's a lot of proliferation going on there, there's no mindfulness and no firm samadhi concentration, then that's just walking for exercise, to exercise one's body. But if you're walking or running and you do have mindfulness uh, with your body, your walking or the stepping of the feet uh, or just with the mind, uh, maybe thinking as well or using the meditation word as well, butto, put with the left foot, to with the right foot, or butto only uh, with the mind, that is then uh, mindfulness, and one's mindfulness can be firm in this way, and then this can be uh, the putta, putta nature arising uh, in the mind. So one's mindfulness can be good, one's samadhi firm, uh, then peace can arise in the mind, uh, and it can feel very light, uh, the body can feel very light. So one could go for 10 kilometers and uh, in this way with good mindfulness and samadhi and the body by then may feel all uh, light and one's samadhi, firm samadhi is also there. And one may even be running with uh, mindfulness and one may gain experience into the body and the mind that actually separates uh, being separate things. And one is able to see in the nature uh, or the clear nature of uh, the body and the mind just being simply uh, the body and being simply the mind. Uh, so all the postures of the body, walking, sitting, standing and lying down, uh, if we do it with mindfulness, then it can be practice or Dhamma practice. But on the other hand, to use these postures of the body and not have mindfulness while we're uh, engaging in those activities, uh, then that isn't uh, Dhamma practice and that isn't samadhi or development of samadhi. This is just like at the normal activities of, of people 
uh, and it's just following or coming from that delusion in this as being a me and a mine. Uh, but if we have good mindfulness coming up, then we may be able to gain understanding. We may be able to gain peace and calm arising. And at the minimum, then this can be a, a good way for us to practice the Dhamma. Leila, I have met a young monk. How do we distinguish a teacher who helps in our practice? Giving forgiveness is okay, but do we also need to be patient? How about wisely selecting our friends and teachers? Thank you. Question about having met a young monk, distinguishing a teacher, and giving forgiveness and wisely selecting our friends and teachers. Uh, so, yeah, the beginning of the practice, a spiritual path, it does start with associating with good friends. The Buddha taught of avoiding those of foolish ways, associating with the wise, and worshipping those worthy of worship. Uh, and this is, or these are the highest blessings. So a good friend, they have goodness in terms of their actions, speech and mind. Uh, the bad friend, uh, they end up causing us suffering. Uh, so there are the teachers in terms of the world and in terms of the Dhamma, and uh, they can help our Dhamma practice. So the bad friends, uh, we end up declining in our spiritual uh, practice and path or in the world because of them. And so we do need to use our wisdom in order to know uh, those that we associate with. Uh, are they uh, pandita? Are they wise? Are they smart and intelligent? Do they take us to go drinking alcohol? Do they take us to go gambling, go out at night? they take us to uh, do bad things or they have their bad qualities or they are a bit of a, a ruffian, they like to engage in unskillful activities or they lead us to uh, the, uh, the lower paths uh, or do they have good sila, uh, they have goodness, they have a heart that's very generous and kind uh, they aren't selfish and they're good uh, to their friends. Uh, and so in terms of a teacher, they're able, there's someone who can help us uh, and they, with the ones with wisdom, then they can help to reduce uh, doubts we have in the practice. In terms of the worldly teacher, uh, they have knowledge, they have skills and experiences uh, that they can help us in order to earn a living and lead our lives. Uh, the teachers in terms of the Dhamma, uh, they're someone who understand uh, the path to take our minds to awakening. So in terms of the young monk, uh, they also uh, can be someone who uh, brings the teachings of a great teacher to us. Uh, they can have 
uh, metta, goodwill and compassion for us and they can help us to find uh, Krubhajan's great teachers who, may, who are better than them or maybe more developed than them, than that monk. Uh, and this could be so that we don't get too attached in this uh, particular teacher. And when they have uh, good things, then they give that to us, they share that with us. And it also can be hard to find someone like this as well. It's someone that we have to go search for too. And we have to gain information uh, about uh, them. For example, in the past, uh, Westerners from outside of Thailand, uh, they would hear and look for noble uh, disciples and go to Thailand. And they were able to find, uh, search and, and find and meet Venerable Ajahn Chah. Uh, and in today's world, there's a lot of information, a lot of technology. And so a young monk can be uh, very good as well. At the minimum, they have ordained already. They've renounced the world. They've given up uh, family. And they have diligence and effort in practicing Dhamma. Uh, and they uh, are sincere, may be sincere on that path to Nibbana, and they can help to advise us and also take the teachings of great teachers and bring that to us and share that with us. Or they can even take us to go pay respects to uh, great teachers as well, ones who have, who have practiced well. So we do need to use our mindfulness and wisdom to, to know all this. It's not just that we just do nothing and a great teacher will be coming to us or it's not that we only want to have a great teacher. Um, it's also good to have uh, other, maybe young monks, as good friends as well, uh, in terms of f uh, wanting to give forgiveness, that is very good. Uh, and in the beginning, practicing this, one does need to endure one's feelings because one may not want to give that forgiveness. One has to be patient in order to, to do this, to practice this. Giving forgiveness is the way of Dhamma practice. And we can also then contemplate that uh, we may die or we will die. Uh, and all these things of ours, we have to let them go. And this feeling of anger or hatred in the mind, uh, it really burns up the mind. And it's said that there's nothing that holds the mind like uh, dosa or anger or hatred. Uh, and so it is hard to practice this forgiveness, but when we do it, then it does get easier. Tanajan, I think I have a limit of meditation period, maximum one hour per session. How to increase my meditation period per session? So being able to sit meditation for one hour per session, uh, that is good. It's not that it's not good. And you can do, you can try to have a few sessions in a day. Uh, if you can do only one hour uh, in the day, you find that's your, your limit, then you can try walking meditation as well in addition. 
so try to develop your mindfulness but through a change of posture. Uh, you, if you want to increase your time or meditation period, then you may find that the mind just doesn't have that much samadhi and concentration, so you may have to endure first. Uh, and you can also try to do some chanting while you're doing that uh, meditation session. If you watch the breath only, you may find that uh, there's a lot of agitation, thinking, and uh, sort of turbulence in the mind. Then you should do some chanting. Uh, or you can practice with uh, the painful feelings because after sitting long, then this uh, pain may arise and you can watch then the vedana, uh, the painful feelings. And so you may try to slowly increase maybe from one hour to one hour and 10 minutes, one hour, 15 minutes, like that, or in the space of seven days and then you increase a bit more, maybe add another 20 minutes uh, to one hour and a half, like that. Uh, and then maybe later on you're able to do two hours in, in, a, in a session. So you slowly increase like, like that. And you can also think and, and contemplate that what if your body wasn't physically able to move? Uh, like, you know, how would you then practice? Uh, if it was the last stages of life and you were very sick, uh, then you, you may not be able to change posture and you'd have to endure that you'd have to be able to do that and sit uh, in a long, for long periods like that, and you'd have to train and practice uh, in this way then. And if you're able to get past uh, the vedana, the painful feelings, then you may be able then to sit longer, uh, one hour to two hours, three hours, and later on even to six hours. And so you may try in one session then to uh, sit two hours or maybe just uh, three sessions a day of an hour and a half like that. Uh, it's up to you to know uh, the, uh, the extent that you can push uh, your, your mind and body. Uh, sometimes things may be going well and you can do a bit more, uh, but if other times things aren't going well, then you should uh, reduce and know to, to uh, adjust. Venerable Ajahn, I have heard that many forest tradition Ajahns used to smoke, used to smoke tobacco and chew betel nut. What does the Vinaya say on this? So we have to understand that the Indian culture, that if a monk was chewing betel nut, then they could accept that. But if uh, a monk was smoking tobacco or taking drugs, then that would be unacceptable. Uh, in the Thai tradition, uh, in the past, to chew betel nut was normal, to smoke uh, tobacco was normal. Uh, we could say that a cause of this is that uh, back then they didn't know that these things uh, were bad for oneself, uh, that had a lot of harm to the body, that may cause cancer and uh, have problems to one's uh, 
uh, organs. Uh, but later on, with an increase of knowledge in the sciences, uh, then uh, then some were able to to stop uh, after knowing the uh, ill effects of of these things. Uh, but today, there still is uh, some monasteries and forest monasteries that uh, the monks there still do smoke or chew betel nut. So it isn't uh, specifically in the vinaya uh, that one can't smoke or, or chew betel nut, so it's not in there. Uh, but there is uh, the prohibition of taking alcohol uh, that is in the, the vineyard. Uh, but chewing betel nut and smoking isn't. Uh, but in the present day world we live in, in society, it's generally accepted that uh, smoking and, and chewing betel nut is a kind of uh, intoxicant or drug. Uh, and it also has bad effects uh, to one's body and to the people around us. Uh, so then one should uh, reduce that uh, or at least or, or give it up completely. But there is also uh, some whose mind uh, may be already very developed and this smoking is more a habit for them uh, their body is very attached to that, uh, the smoking or the betel nut, but their mind isn't attached to it. Um, it's just because that they've done this for a long time that the body is attaches to it and needs it, it needs to have it, uh, but their mind can know and can separate out from those feelings. Uh, they're able to let go of the body if it goes one way according to sicknesses, according to nature. They're able to let go of it. Uh, so we can't say that it's only bad, um, but if one can stop, then that would be good. Uh, in Wat Nongpapong, uh, they used to take chew betel nut and smoke, um, but after coming together in a Sangha meeting, uh, they had a bit more knowledge about this uh, topic and a monk brought it up and said that it isn't appropriate to do this uh, because in the West or Western countries uh, they wouldn't understand this if monks were doing uh, this uh, because monks are teaching about letting go, uh, about giving up their defilements, mental defilements, but why do they still hold on and attach to smoking and betel nut? Uh, so the monks in the West, they wouldn't uh, smoke or chew betel nut. Uh, so they did end up stopping uh, this in Wat Nong Pa Pong. So in 1976, was it? When Ben Anan was there, they already had uh, the practice of not smoking and chewing betel nut in the monastery. Uh, but 
in the early days after they had the rule, but a layperson may still offer a bit of betel nut uh, to the monks, and Ajahn Chah might take a little bit, but eventually he did quit it as well and gave it up. So he might take a little and then eventually reduced and then quit completely. So in Wat Nongpa Pong, there was uh, the rule there that the monks are forbidden to smoke and to chew betel nut. Wantami Pante, Venerable Sir, in this human life we are doing good deeds without any expectations in our daily struggling life. Does it give good results in the present and future? Please clarify, Pante. We are eating, uh, question number two. We are eating non-vegetarian food, uh, meat. Is it not breaking the seal of precept of Panatipata Pante? So it's normal that we need to struggle in our lives every day because our body is like this. It is unsatisfactory, it is a cause of suffering. If we want the body just to be completely still and indifferent, uh, it can't do that. Uh, it needs water, it needs food, and so in, when the economy is good, we're able to get these easily. When the economy is bad, then we may even need to filter out uh, dirty water and take that. Um, because this body can't go without. It needs to have uh, all this water and food and other requisites, and even many times a day. So we can contemplate the body, uh, that it is suffering unsatisfactory like this. And if we don't look after it, then it just ends up causing us a lot of problems and problems to this body. And so we do need to uh, study hard, get an education, work, uh, in order to uh, support this body. We give it, uh, we have medicines if it gets sick, uh, we have clothing uh, for it, uh, a small or big house to shelter it. Uh, we have enough food that we can survive. And so when the world becomes a more difficult place to live in, then uh, we experience more hardships. So doing goodness, uh, that is uh, what we should do. Uh, building good karma. And so even if we don't want the results or we don't expect any results from doing good karma. Uh, it's something that the goodness is in our minds when we do it. Uh, it's, it's good karma uh, leads to uh, good results, or good actions lead to good results. It's like we plant seeds or vegetables uh, into the soil, and we then fertilize it, water it, look after it. Uh, and even if we don't want those seeds and vegetables to grow, uh, they still will grow. Uh, 
And so even if we don't want the results, but if we do it, then we will get that good result from it. And the second question about eating non-vegetarian food, eating meat, is it not breaking the precept of panatipata, killing living beings? Panatipata, uh, that is the intent to kill uh, living beings. Uh, and so keeping sila, then the precept, then we don't do this. We abstain from it. And we also don't uh, promote the killing of living beings and we don't uh, get others to, to do the killing. Uh, we can choose then when we eat food uh, to just choose the meat that's already been, that is already meat, that's already been killed without our knowing, without us telling them to do anything with that or anything like that. Uh, and if we know then they've killed it specifically for us, then we shouldn't, we shouldn't eat that. Uh, so in other words, eating meat like this is not considered breaking the precept. So in the Buddha's time, there was also a woman who was a sotapanna, stream enterer, and she wouldn't kill living beings and would keep the precepts. Uh, and she had a husband who was a hunter, and he, his uh, job or profession obviously was to kill uh, animals. But she herself would prepare the weapons for the hunter, uh, but she didn't herself have any intention to kill any living beings, and she didn't want them also to die. Uh, so it's up to our jetana, our intention. Intention is, is sila. Uh, so in English, the um, question was, Hi, Ajahn. Thanks for your guidance and hosting this retreat. I have a question to ask Ajahn. My mind blacks out when I sleep. I don't have any dreams, but I don't know where my mind is. Is this okay? Thanks, Ajahn. So when we're sleeping, then our mind may... Uh, there may be a lot of proliferation there. Uh, we don't know what's going on. You may be awake, a bit awake, a bit asleep, a bit asleep, a bit awake like this. Um, but if we, our mindfulness is good, then we may be able to keep going on with our meditation, uh, meditation object. Um, before we sleep, then we try to keep watching the breath. And then when we fall asleep, then we have mindfulness there. Uh, and then when we wake up, uh, our mindfulness is already straight away with our breath. And so this, uh, like this, then the practice is continuous. We've been practicing continuously. Um, but others, or usually the mindfulness, uh, they might not have much mindfulness and fall asleep. And then when they wake up, then their mindfulness is not with the breath. Uh, so this is uh, not having mindfulness. But don't worry too much about it because when you're sleeping, it's a state called bawanga, and so the mind isn't receiving uh, the, the sense impressions from the six sense bases, i.e. nose, tongue, uh, body, and the mind. Uh, but there may be some dreams or nightmares, but we know that oh, sometimes, or many times, we don't even remember those. And so one may ask then, is it considered bad karma or a bad deed if we kill someone in a dream or nightmare? 
Uh, that isn't that isn't uh, bad, Gamma Obapo, because we don't have the intention there to kill. Um, so we should try to develop a lot of mindfulness through the day, uh, and then this will sorry then this will give results, uh, we, and we may see that we've been contemplating the body a lot. And then when we sleep, the mind is still contemplating the body into its impermanence, into it being unattractive, not beautiful. Uh, and so then the mind can actually be awake even though the body is sleeping. Uh, the body is asleep, but the mind is, is awake. And so one may experience that what, they sleep for just 30 minutes and they wake up, or, and it's just been 30 minutes, but they feel so wide awake. Um, this is because the mind has peace and has knowing there. And this is something that Dhamma practitioners may get to this point and experience uh, for themselves. Uh, but if we haven't experienced it, then never mind. Uh, just keep, well, we're still practicing, so just keep on practicing. And then after we wake up, just try to establish our mindfulness as quick as we can. Ajahn, what can I do for my aging parents on their deathbed one day? Should I chant for them? If so, which chant? So the person asking the question, they have met the goodwill to their mother and father. They wish that their parents can be free of suffering and to have happiness. So this is considered to be a child that is, has gratitude. So if one sees one's mother and father uh, aging on their deathbed, then one should contemplate that we too will be like this. And then when we are like that, who's going to be chanting for us? So we need to chant first for ourselves. Uh, now and we can contemplate then as well that we have to grow old get sick and die and so we should not be heedless we should strive to build goodness and avoid all the unskillful practice our dana sila and bhavana uh, cultivating the mind as much as we can and so to help our parents, and we have uh, that goodwill towards them, and we are someone with gratitude, or they're a person that we have received a lot from. So uh, we ask, how can we help them if they are in that state of uh, aging and on their deathbed? Uh, but what we can do now is that we ask them, while they're still healthy, what chant do they like? Uh, and we can ask them what chant gives them joy, gives them peace and happiness, uh, which, which verse. Uh, and then we can also uh, maybe teach them to do that, to chant. Uh, and also, uh, if they're not skilled at those chants, and we can do it with them. Uh, and we can also do chanting and also start them on the practice of meditation as well. Um, but our parents may actually have a lot of uh, knowing and 
spiritual goodness already, and, and in the, they may have done a lot of chanting, listened uh, to Dhamma, practiced, and given alms regularly. So then, in this case, we don't really need to worry about them too much. But if you're asking what's the uh, basic or fundamental chance that we should uh, prepare and do for them, then that is uh, the chance of the virtues of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, uh, the sharing of metta and the bochanko uh, chant. Uh, and we can also now ask them what chant they do like so that uh, later on we will know that we chant the right verse. So, question in English. Wantami Banteji. I can eat less and talk less, but I cannot sleep little because my body needs a lot of sleep. Kindly give me suggestions regarding how to practice by getting less sleep because the place where I stay has very rare, very few trees and the surrounding area is filled with violence. Um, and the second part to the question, uh, Whatever inner truth that you have observed till now or in the future, kindly bless me so that I can experience the same in the coming days by putting in the effort. Thank you. So the good practice is to sleep little, talk little, eat little. Uh, because if one sleeps a lot, then one may... Uh, one's mind may be more foggy uh, and kind of intoxicated. So the practice for monks, for monastics, is uh, someone who keep practices strictly will be able to sleep just four hours. Uh, and But for monks in general, they'll sleep five to six hours at most. Uh, for the lay people, though, uh, you have a lot of work and responsibilities and so you do need to use your body a lot. Uh, it's like a car that needs to use a lot of battery. Uh, and so you do need to charge it a bit longer. Uh, and especially while you're doing all your work, uh, your mindfulness that you can establish may be little. Uh, so you do need to rest more, maybe seven to eight hours a day, uh, but not six hours or less like, uh, like the monks. Uh, but sometimes you can try to practice a bit more, maybe on like a Friday, uh, you know, sleep less, maybe six hours, or you know, if you can't do that, you could even take a bit of a rest, an hour in the day even, uh, and you can just practice this uh, sometimes, uh, something like this. But if you aren't able to do that, then that's fine, just uh, let the body rest, um, because if you don't, then it could be a, problem to your long-term health. Um, and also, people's environment are also different. If one lives close to a lot of trees, then there's a lot of oxygen and everything's a bit fresher. Uh, but also, in terms of uh, um, moods and emotions that we receive and experience, uh, if we have a lot of positive uh, type, the positive type and also good friends, and this can help and support us a lot. But on the other side, if we have around us, we receive a lot of 
violence, and there's a lot of uh, bad emotions and moods and experiences there, the mind does get a lot more chaotic. Uh, and so then we do need to have enough rest. And the second part, anumotana, uh, in, uh, in all of, uh, for all of you, uh, and whatever, knowing uh, Lumpur said that he hopes that, uh, he wishes that you all uh, who are practicing here gain a part of that and also know uh, the same and following this. And may the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha protect and support all of us and may you all attain to this inner awakening. should be enough for today's question and answer session. There's about five questions left over which will be answered tomorrow.